Are you passionate about creating a physical product, something you can touch, feel, or taste, and then get paid for it by those that love what you've created? Well, the Product Launch Rebel Podcast is the one for you, where you get insider tips on how to spot an opportunity, manufacture your product, get financing, and achieve the independence you've always dreamed about. It's time to crank it up with your host, product developer, investor, and founder of VentureSuperfly.com, John Benzik. Greetings, Product Launch Rebels, and welcome to the Product Launch Rebel Podcast. I am your host, John Benzik, from VentureSuperfly.com, where we help to double your entrepreneurial courage, even if you're in a sea of self-doubt. Today's episode features my interview with Caro Chrisman. Most recently, he was the CEO of Outdoor Tech. The company's goal has been to address the ever-growing issue of blending the age of mobile technology with the drive to be outdoors. So they've offered products like portable power packs for your smartphone or rugged wireless boom boxes or burly wireless headphones or even wireless headphones that integrate into your snowboarding helmet. Really terrific gear made for the outdoor enthusiast. Overall, Caro is a founder and CEO of several growth organizations, two of which were named the Inc. 500 list a combined six times and acquired by a third party. Prior to Outdoor Tech, he was the CEO of Source Abroad Inc., a sourcing and logistics company, which might give us a hint about why and how he started Outdoor Tech. I don't know, but we'll find out here. And he's currently the co-founder of INLT, a SaaS-enabled logistics business changing the way goods are entered through U.S. Customs. But today we'll feature his experience in launching and growing the outdoor tech brand since it's more suitable for our consumer product-oriented podcast. To learn more about Caro and the outdoor tech company, visit OutdoorTechnology.com. Caro, thanks for taking the time. I'm really thrilled that you're here and welcome to the Product Launch Rebel podcast. John, thanks so much for the invitation. I'm thrilled to be here as well. I'm so thrilled. So, Carl, within this podcast, there are three segments. The first is called Give Me the Basics, which helps set the context about your company for our listeners. The second part is what I call Tell Me How, where we'll get to the heart of the matter on issues that aspiring entrepreneurs want to know now to help them move forward. And the final part is the Let's Get Personal piece, where we get into some of the more personal topics about what it's like to start a business. Carl, it's time for some questions. What do you think? Are you ready for the interview? Let's do it. Fantastic. Here we go. Carl, so tell us the story. How did you originally discover the idea to start an outdoor consumer electronics company? That is really cool. Yeah, absolutely. No, uh, so at the time I was running Source Abroad, um, it was it had been a fast growth business for a number of years. However, I started to see some changing environments with the business. Um, You know, the margins were beginning to compress. I was having a harder time uh, keeping up the the torrid growth rate that I had in the previous years. And I wasn't certain that I was going to be able to scale the business much further. And, you know, I had a dream of doing something in the outdoor space and specifically in the snow space. And I decided that the way to to, uh, protect margins and do something that was more scalable was to build a consumer brand. So 
Uh, in 2010, uh, I started outdoor tech, and I really used some of the the excess uh, cash flow from Source Abroad and a good bit of bit of my supply chain knowledge through that business to uh, to launch outdoor tech, and we launched it with myself and and one other person in uh, the warehouse of the Source Abroad facility. And so, did you have some really good connections with consumer electronic manufacturers overseas? Yeah, you know, I, I definitely had the benefit of seeing a tremendous amount of product and um, knowing a lot of, of manufacturers that were that were making you know early on Bluetooth products and, and some of the various lower end accessories that we were that we started our line with at the time. Um, so you know, when we started, uh, the products weren't you know, Bluetooth enabled audio. Uh, we started with a very sort of low end group of accessories we started the business you know right at the right sort of at the the height of of the great recession and and the concept was to begin with the branding exercise really understand and learn the market and start with low price point products that were going to be appealing to a younger action sport demographic Uh, as the business progressed we moved into higher price point products with more technology built into them what interested you in that market the action sports enthusiast did you have a background snowboarding skateboarding surfing anything like that really skiing so you know i I was uh, an avid skier my whole life um and i you know i had this dream of of being in the snow industry and and getting into the ski industry in, in some capacity or another at some point in my career and you know that was really sort of the impetus for for outdoor tech for outdoor tech, who did you sell to originally, those types of retailers, and what was the distribution strategy for outdoor tech? It was really a learning exercise early on. Um, I knew nothing about the outdoor industry. I knew no one in the market. Um, I didn't know the first thing about selling to retail. My previous business had been all B2B and, you know, and really sort of in the promotional and gift space. I, you know, I knew a lot about sourcing. I knew a lot about logistics. I knew how to make and develop product, um, but knew nothing about this. So, uh, and I think the, the first trade show we went to was the SIA show, which is the, the snow show. I know some of your your previous guests have had uh, a good bit of experience in that space as well. And I you know, literally showed up with a corporate booth from Source Abroad that we sort of rebranded to be outdoor tech, and, and it was a complete learning experience we looked around and everyone had you know the coolest stuff on the block and uh, incredible branding and and we really realized that you know we were going to have to to change and up our game quite a bit uh, to address the question of where we sold our first stuff you know first of all it was it was sold direct to consumer through our website and that was that was where we were getting a bit of traction early on um, as well as we got sort of a, a unique opportunity to sell one of our products to dick sporting goods it was uh, it was in a non-traditional way. So they they uh, we pitched them on the product, and they wanted to do it as a gift with purchase for back to school for backpacks. And it was a really good opportunity for us to proliferate the brand uh, to to sort of our core target demographic, which were you know, younger younger kids. How did you get that deal with the Dicks? And did you go to Pittsburgh to solidify that deal? I've been. There are a number of times, and we've sold in a previous business to Dick Sporting Goods, and so I would go there. Did you actually go to Pittsburgh and meet with them, or did you just work through distance? So over over the years and evolution of Outdoor Tech, I 
you know, I had the the opportunity to go to Pittsburgh and meet with them a number of times. Uh, great company, really, really enjoyed that that interaction with them, and they have a fantastic buying team. I have a lot of respect for the organization, um, and you know, I think that's that's born true as you sort of see the uh, the shift in in that marketplace. Certainly, in in the outdoor space over the last few years, they've been. You know, they've been a clear winner while others um, have not been. That particular deal, I don't I, I don't think we went to Pittsburgh to uh, to uh, culminate that deal. We we simply did everything over the phone and via email. What a great opportunity. I don't know if you know this, but I owned a ski and snowboard clothing outerwear brand and back in the early 2000s. So I know SIA, the Snow Sports Industries of America. I know that show pretty well. And really had a lot of fun doing those shows. It's a really fun show. So we, uh, you know, we we were there. Our first year was the last year of the Las Vegas show, and then they, of course, moved it to Denver. Uh, the show is again sort of the antithesis of all of the shows that I had been doing previously in the corporate world. You know, people were partying in the aisles, and uh, it, it's a really it's a really good time where the whole industry comes together. And you know, over the years, I made a a ton of great friends in the business that, I, that I'm still quite close with. Yeah, it's such a fun industry to be in. I remember hanging out by the Volcom booth and feeling really out of place because that was just <laughs> too cool for school there. But yeah, it's a definite, definitely a different scene there. Did you ever present? Did you ever present your product to outdoor retailer as well at that trade show? Yeah, absolutely. That was. Um... We did both summer market and winter market. We ultimately stopped doing winter market um, for a number of reasons. One, primarily we were seeing many of the same buyers at SIA as we were at winter market. And two, we just we just had too hectic of a trade show schedule in the month of January when we introduced CES into the mix. And, and sort of three, the diminishing returns of, of the trade show uh, scene at the time uh, and sort of continuing on becomes a challenge for for budget for for brands i think it really is and those trade shows are becoming less and less prominent all the time it seems so let's get back to that original question in terms of who you sold to so you sold to dick's sporting goods at least initially but eventually as you sort of evolved what sort of channels did you distribute through and what types of retailers another really supportive retailer early on for us was backcountry.com uh we had a we had a really good relationship with our buyer at the time there, uh, and they were they were very supportive of our brand. Uh, we had, I think, in our one of our first trade shows, the buying group from from EMS, who we became close friends with over the years. Never did a ton of business with them, but they were tremendously helpful in in giving us guidance and and shaping some of the direction of uh, of the brand as well as the product. Uh, just great group of people that you know, unfortunately have all. Uh, really moved on at this point, given the the acquisitions, and uh, see other channels we sold to early on. Um, we we definitely went in some non traditional channels. So Urban Outfitters was a was a fairly early client of ours. Again, not not somewhere where we pushed a ton of volume or or um, really made made a lot of revenue from, but it was a great uh, marquee name for us early on as well. Sure. And are you in REI now? Yeah. So. So to be clear, I'm I'm not involved with the brand at all any longer. But um, the, the outdoor tech is sold in REI today. 
Yeah, and all sorts of other sporting retailers, including bike shops and outdoor shops and snowboard shops and so on. How did you come up with the name Outdoor Tech? And did you have any issues regarding the trademark of that name? Because it's just so common, those two names. Uh, you know, I think we were, I mean, there were a lot of names that were that were bantered around. I can't recall exactly how we came up with the name. I know uh, co-founder and designer Mikey Cristal was the one who uh, who ultimately came up with the logo, and we were thrilled with with uh, with the positioning that the logo had for the brand. The name, I think, you know, was was just sort of a collection of us throwing a bunch of things out and ultimately deciding on that. And I think probably the availability of the domain as well. You know, ultimately the tagline of stuff you probably want was something we we all came up with in a branding exercise also. So it was, it was uh, you know, team effort and uh, availability of domains and, and trademarks. My brother-in-law, his name's Kiri Surku, is, uh, he was our trademark and patent attorney, and I've done a bunch of work with him over the years. And yeah, I think it was, it was sort of, uh, you know, it, it spoke directly to what we were doing, and, and I was, you know, an advocate of having a brand name being uh, very clear in what it did rather than sort of being this this uh, this opaque name that no one really knew what it was at all. Carl, most entrepreneurs go into business with a set of assumptions and many of those assumptions prove to be different from what they expected, thereby making them scramble to make changes in order to survive. It sounds like you had some really quick early learning experiences with your outdoor tech brand. Can you tell us maybe how you had to pivot or some of those initial learnings about your product line and maybe how you had to adjust your selling proposition after you were able to get some customer feedback? Sure. You know, I, I think the, the market was evolving rather quickly in the consumer electronics space uh, we, uh, and as well as in the accessory space. And so, so maybe some of the early assumptions were that, that we could you know, we could sell a product that was primarily based on on good branding, and that would be sufficient. I think we realized quickly that two things: one, the price points of those products were needed to be elevated to create more meaningful revenue, uh, and two, that that was that was a real challenge. We were competing against some of the largest consumer electronics brands in the world. That you know, um, while we were pioneering the space of of rugged wireless audio at the time. You know, people soon realized that 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 was a very um, a very healthy space to be in, and and we had a lot of competition that came in quickly. So we needed to continue to reinvent the products and reinvent the brand and stay stay you know in a in a niche enough space that was also large enough to grow uh, grow revenue meaningfully. Um, I think probably the the biggest thing that I didn't understand about about consumer brands was how expensive it is to build a brand and you know how much capital is is required in my previous business i i self-funded the business and grew very quickly over you know a sustained period of time without bringing in any outside capital and and uh you know i thought i could do the same with outdoor tech given that i, that I had a good head start and um and some capital to keep the the growth of the business going early on and, and i just didn't appreciate the, uh, the amount of money that's required to build a big brand. When I started my ski and snowboard brand, my outerwear company back in the day, that was absolutely very common. 
for other brands getting in and certainly my experience and I just had no idea what it would take to build a brand, especially in a very seasonal business such as the outerwear and the winter sports business. And it was a huge learning experience for me as well. Just so expensive and so costly. Absolutely. I mean, we had the benefit of not being in traditional outerwear and apparel. And it was, we were also fortunate not to be you know, highly dependent on snow, certainly at, the, at least at that time. Now, now the business you know, one of the marquee products uh, of the business today is is certainly the uh, the helmet product that's primarily snow based. You know, but we were we were not while it was sort of a, an area that we were penetrating to become respected and kind of cool on the block with with sort of some of the brands that you mentioned. It wasn't where the lion's share of the revenue was was being driven. So you know, we weren't heavily seasonal at the time. Caro, here we are in the Tell Me How segment of the podcast, where we aim to get to the heart of the matter regarding key issues for aspiring entrepreneurs. Let's talk about raising capital. Caro, it sounded like you were able to self-fund outdoor tech in the early stages, but did you ever get to the stage where you went to outside investors or other types of capital? Yeah, absolutely. As you mentioned, John, I I self-funded the business. I mean, it became a strain on my other business, so I continued to operate Source Abroad um, until I ultimately sold the business uh, in January of 2014. I wasn't active in the business for, for a good bit of that time. My wife and a management team had taken over the business, but it was, you know, it was still my name on the line of credit every day. And, and you know, as, as outdoor tech grew and it showed more promise uh, before I brought in any outside capital, it was something where, again, back to the to the previous question, I didn't appreciate the amount of capital that was going to be required to grow the business, and I'd sort of, you know, mentally and and internally between my wife and myself set a threshold of what we would be willing to put into the business, and I would go back to my wife and go, all right, well, you know, just another hundred thousand, you know, and uh, she's like, okay, you know, I, I guess, you know, I see the business is growing, and you know, come back and go, you know. I, we're just going to put another hundred thousand in, and you know we were we were fortunate that we had a very, a very good business in, uh, in the sourcing business at the time, um, but you know as we started to take additional capital out of that business, it became you know a strain on that business, and there were there were certainly a number of times when you know there was a decision whether we should just shut it down. You know it wasn't it was going to be, uh, you know it was going to be a tremendous cash drain there wasn't necessarily uh you know an exit strategy at the time we didn't know when it would turn to be a a profitable business Um, the idea of raising outside capital was was a bit daunting to me having never done it before i didn't know if i wanted to to um you know embroil myself in that world at the time so um you know it's it's you know definitely a was definitely a difficult process early on but very common most of the guests that I talk to in this podcast all face those types of decisions. Absolutely. No, I think it's, I think it's something that until you go through it and probably after you go through it, you know, still don't necessarily appreciate what's required. Um, so ultimately in the, um, in 2012, you know, we kind of came to this realization that I really wanted to focus on, on this business. I saw the potential and the growth. I, I refined the plan for the business at that point. Um, and I wanted to bring in some outside capital 
to to grow the business or I would shut it down. And that was those were really the two choices that that uh, that I was faced with at the time. And you know we uh, we weren't sure what we were going to do. It was it was a real decision, and we saw the value in the brand. We saw you know, it was it was incredible the response we got from kids. You know, early on at the time we had this big social media following with that that became very organic. Uh, we were we were very organic and real with the brand. We did some really cool sort of viral marketing things that got that got the logo to be seen all over the place. Um, we had 50,000 Facebook followers in 2010 without really spending much money on it at all. And, and there was this perception that the brand was you know, considerably bigger than it was because it, it wasn't big at all as far as uh, as far as revenue and certainly not as far as headcount on the on the team side of things. And who did you turn to to get the money to invest in the company? Yeah, so I was approached by by someone that I knew who went to work for a uh, you know a high net worth individual that was looking to deploy some capital. Beyond that, did you go for additional sources as well, or did that one individual solve your problem for a while? I ended up selling source abroad, and I participated. I think there were there were a few rounds of financing for the business, uh, one of which I participated in Parapasu with the with the um, original investor in as we raised some larger money um, as the business progressed in the latter years of my involvement um, there was you know we we hired bankers we uh, we went out to try and raise you know larger private equity um, piece of the business which which ultimately didn't occur let's switch gears and talk a little bit about finding a manufacturer obviously you had quite a bit of experience dealing with sourcing materials and products abroad but regarding outdoor tech how did you find that one particular factory or or source to manufacture your products i was in a position where i had a lot of experience doing that and i had 10 people working for me in china uh, for my other company so it was it was you know certainly i would say a bit unique from probably most of your listeners and, and likely many of your other guests. And that I was, I was really well entrenched in, in China and with the ability to find a manufacturer that said, um, it was a really difficult process. And I think, you know, probably, um, you know, continues to be so for many brands as they progress and move forward. And particularly in the early days when you have very little volume and you're looking to, to build a product that has a good bit of upfront costs, um, you think that when you're looking for a vendor, um, that, you know, the vendor is, is pitching you on why you should work with them. And, you know, my, my experience and my advice to, uh, you know, your, your listeners is, is really, it's the inverse in the early days. Uh, you're really going out pitching a vendor on why they should support you and why they should believe in you, uh, why they should you know, support the non-recurring engineering costs and, and, you know, why they should amortize tooling over, over the lifetime of a product. And, you know, then of course you're, you're looking for, for the right fit. Uh, and the right fit means that they're the right size company. You can't, you can't go and try and develop um, a new consumer electronics brand and a new consumer electronics product that has, you know, very little volume associated with it, likely with, with, you know, Foxconn, um, unless, unless you're, you know, a big VC backed hardware company or Flextronics. 
Um, so, you know, having the kind of right sizing the the uh, the vendor relationship is very important. And how did you convince the manufacturer to go with you? What sort of presentation did you have? You, you go out and drink with them. Huh, yeah. <laughs> no, it's uh, you know, it's it's a combination of things. One, you're you're selling you're selling the brand. Uh, you're you're selling them on on where you're positioning the brand. You're telling them, giving them some insights on the marketplace. You know, you're kind of opening up the hood a little bit and telling them about your plan, um, giving them giving them tangible aspects of what you're going to do, what retailers you're going to sell to, and I think that's that's always a big help if you happen to to have an existing relationship. Um, you know, Dick Sporting Goods, Urban Outfitters, those types of names. You know, certainly most of the the vendors overseas and, and your suppliers will know those names and have an appetite to to uh, to be involved and sell to them because they they see volume associated with that. So, you know, it's a combination of of having uh, you know a good design that you can get people to buy into, uh, having a team that that gets along well and, and they believe in. Um, and then, you know, a plan that you can show them that associates growth. Going from a company where you are dealing with logistics for other companies and then becoming your own brand, was there something that surprised you or anything you did not expect having your own brand in terms of importing product like that and then distributing it and mainly working with that manufacturer? Was there a surprise or something unexpected? From the logistics perspective, you know we we had been doing all of our own uh, warehouse and distribution work at Source Abroad, so we had a we had a fairly small warehouse. Our distribution, our supply chain was very complex in that we were you know at the previous company had hundreds of different suppliers with hundreds of different purchase orders open at any given time, and you know quality control network throughout throughout China and. You know, it was a it was a far more complex supply chain than it was at Outdoor Tech, where it was just a few suppliers. Uh, so from that perspective, it was it was far more simplistic. Uh, I would say the more complex component came in the domestic distribution of the product. So whereas in my sourcing business, we we had a you know B two B distribution market, we weren't doing pick pack and ship orders, and we were operating a very sort of traditional cross dock type warehouse. If that if that means anything to you, and the other one we were doing, you know, retail distribution, which which is far more difficult actually, um, because there's a tremendous amount of compliance uh, in that distribution. Uh, there's more you know, trading of EDI information via EDI with the retailers. Uh, there's more integrations that are required, um, and then from the direct consumer perspective. You know, we just we just simply couldn't do it uh, in in house, and and ultimately uh, went to a three PL environment, which was which was great, and I would highly suggest for for any of your listeners to find a, a really good three PL partner for the distribution. How did you come up with the scope of your product line? Maybe after a year or two in business, I would imagine you might have originally had a specific idea with a product in mind, but. As you look at the business now, there are sort of all types of different products that are being offered from soft goods related to really specific and and high-tech electronic products. So most entrepreneurs sort of envision a product line that they have, but sometimes they they get caught by having too many products. And with the 80-20 rule, 
you know, two of their 10 products are delivering, delivering 80% of the profits and things like that. Did it ever get unwieldy with your product line being too broad or was it too narrow and limited? Interesting question for sure. And so that's a, that's a great question and something that I think people should be very hyper-focused on. Um, you know, I don't know that there's a right and a wrong answer to this. I, I will tell you that, um, you know, I think that the ability to be hyper-focused on a small subset of products and make great products in that small subset to me is a, is a great strategy and one that, that I've, that I've observed competitors win with over and over again. And I think that, that there's a, you know, that there's a tendency to, to want to go too broad because skew proliferation can add, you know, incremental revenue sort of in and of itself. And, on uh, and I think, you know, a lot of brands have, have seen challenges with that in a number of different areas um one being you know inventory management one being the inability to focus on any particular skew when when you have so many um and so you know i i would i would recommend that that a lot of time and thought and market research goes into that process and uh you know a product pipeline be derived uh, and and followed and you know um, that it's not something that's absolutely stagnant, that you come back to it and you get buy-in from your team and you get buy-in from your customers and um, you ask and you're curious and you learn. Let's shift gears a little bit and start talking about marketing the products. You talked about how you were relatively successful in making your company look bigger than it was through social media. What were some of the key elements of your marketing plan that worked maybe beyond that social media? Yeah, so social was a big component of it in the early days, um, and you know we found various different hacks in in that realm to be to be uh, successful and to proliferate the brand. Um, I think the the trade marketing is is sort of the other component where where we did a really good job, um, and we we were scrappy and and worked with limited resources to become uh, you know well known amongst the trade. Uh, you know, I can give you a, one anecdote, which which was everyone, you know, I think uh, received really well. And I still hear people talk about it from time to time, which was the urinal screen approach. Uh, so we we would go to a trade show and we would have a bunch of outdoor tech urinal screens printed up with our booth number. And we would go in true kind of ultimate maybe grill marketing style and go and uh you know litter the bathroom urinals with with uh, the outdoor tech booth number and uh, and ultimately that grew to become uh, you know popular enough where we became the official urinal screen sponsor of surf expo one year um, and that was sort of the ultimate because we didn't have to go and put them in every day ourselves we we paid the we paid the show to go do it for us Interesting. I remember seeing those all of the time at the SIA show, Uh, and it might have even been your brand. I can't remember specifically. So, Carl, let's talk about some personal items here. It seems that 99 out of 100 people just talk about starting a business, but they never start one. Starting a business is really risky and unusual. What motivates a person like you, Carl Christman? to stop just talking about launching a business and then actually go out and start a business like Outdoor Tech or any of your other businesses? Do you think you're a pre 
creator at heart. I don't know, crazy or creator, I'm not, I'm not sure. I, you know, I think that uh, I think that there's definitely something a little different about people that are that are entrepreneurs and and desire to do this, and then certainly people that desire to do it more than once, and people that after more than once want to continue to do it over and over again. Um, it it is. Uh, it is not the way I would I would suggest to make a living for most people. Um, you know, it's it's certainly the least stable. Um, it is uh, the most risky. Uh, that said, it's you know I I couldn't live with that. I mean, I have so much fun building a business and growing a business and and you know leading a team and um, and entering new markets. And for me, it's really sort of the curiosity component of it is learning new things uh, every day uh, learning where where you're right learning where you're wrong learning where you need to improve yourself learning where you need to improve your team um, you know and, and um, I, I knew I was going to be an entrepreneur probably from a fairly early age in college I had a I had a subscription website business um, you know I, I had a job for a couple of years because I wanted to learn how to sell to people and that was something that, that I, I sort of did as a means to an end. Um, and then, you know, quickly started my first uh, quote unquote real business. Were you exposed to entrepreneurs in your family growing up? Do you think that had an effect on you or were you one of the first in your family to do so? Uh, my, my stepfather uh, had a, a pharmaceutical contract manufacturing business in uh, the pharmaceutical industry. So I I definitely was exposed to that from an early age, uh, and that was that I'm sure contributed to uh, to my desire to to um, to run my own business. Did your success in launching some of these businesses surprise you? No. And why not? I'm willing to outwork anyone, and you know, I think that's you know, something where you can never you can never guarantee that you're, and oftentimes you know um, you're you're definitely not the smartest person in the room, but you can absolutely guarantee that you're, you're going to outwork every single person in that room. And, you know, I knew that, that, um, that I would win. I mean, I just, you know, when I, when I set out to do something, you know, failure is, is something that, that while I realize is a, is certainly, um, a realistic option. I, I feel that, you know, hard work and determination and finding solutions and being, um, you know, being intellectually curious about the way something can work and then figuring it out and outworking whoever is there to do it uh, is, is often overcomes a great deal of other shortcomings. Where do you think you got that work ethic and that mentality? I, you know, I think it's just competitiveness, um, both, you know, internal and amongst your peer group. Um, and I had a, I had a fortune of, of having, you know, a very, um, motivated and driven and successful peer group and and uh and i think you know those people uh those people have driven me to become to become um you know more successful and and harder working what has been your biggest joy or what have you been most proud of along your entrepreneurial journey to date i would i would definitely say you know the growth of outdoor tech and the and the team and the people that i that I worked with there, uh, it was it was quite an experience to see that brand, uh, you know, go from a nothing to a nationally and internationally recognized business. 
and uh, and the people that I worked with along the way. And you know, certainly, I made a, a lot of mistakes and and learned a great deal from it. But I was a it was a pretty special experience. It's funny. I was talking to another entrepreneur the other day, and he was talking about how it's ironic how he's recognized as being a really successful entrepreneur when his success is just littered with constant mistakes from the very beginning. There's a ton of mistakes. And I think that, you know, people don't, people don't see that stuff from the outside. And, uh, yeah, I don't think that it's, that it's only the, the novice entrepreneur that, that makes those mistakes. We all make them. I mean, I, you know, hopefully we don't continue to make the same ones over and over again. We get a little bit better each time we, we do things, but yeah, I mean, it's, you know, you're making hard decisions every single day that impact a lot of people, um, and, and the business that you run and, you know, um, and you can't be perfect with that. What has been your biggest frustration? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, access to capital was something that was, that was really frustrating. You know, I think that particularly in the, in the hard goods space, and, and obviously you're, you're focused on, on the, on the consumer products and hard goods space, uh, you know, being a, a very capital intensive space and business, um, you know, we, you know, we tend to be throttled with, uh, with, with capital sometimes. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of investors that aren't interested or focused on that area. It's not something that you know or told or realized that, you know, hey, investors, you know, look at these businesses a little bit differently because they certainly already recognize how capital intensive it is to build a big business. And and so sort of, you know, always being uh, a little too small or or a little too big for a particular investor always seems to be you know, an interesting, uh, an interesting quandary. Yeah. It seems like it's always one thing or another, really. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we went through various stages of the business and kept, you know, growing it and doubling it and doubling it and doubling it. Um, and, you know, entering new markets and, and having benchmark successes, um, and, and sort of really not, you know, not being able to, um, to gain access to, to a great deal of capital was, was definitely something that was frustrating to me and something that I, that I learned a great deal from. Yeah. And as a result of some of that frustration, as you know, many entrepreneurs have issues as they go along their entrepreneurial journey. And in particular, even seasoned entrepreneurs that have succeeded in the past, they experience self-doubt as they go along and start a new business or take their business to the next stage. How much self-doubt have you had, if any, and maybe what have you done to deal with that self-doubt? I I think that you know you'd be lying most. At least you know at least I would be lying if I said that uh, that there's never self-doubt. I, I you know I don't know people that that don't have it. Although I'm I'm certain there there must be someone out there. Um, look, when when times get tough and you look in the mirror, you're trying to find a solution to a problem and you're not certain that you have it. It's it's natural to have a bit of self doubt. I mean, and, and you know, I think the trying to figure out a way to not let that sort of overcome you and break the problem into into small bits and pieces rather than sort of looking at it this one big daunting overwhelming issue. It tends to be the way that it, that I would tend to deal with it. And so, and most of the time, as an entrepreneur, you have no choice but to just plow through it. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, it's uh, 
you have a lot of people that rely on that rely on you and um yeah, i think that's it's uh it can be it can be a very lonely place certainly sometimes how do you think starting a business or your businesses has changed you as a person if at all i'm sure it's changed me a great deal i you know i, I think um I, I wouldn't be able to point to sort of one you know one specific thing that that's changed me i, I think the, probably the biggest thing is just for me is just curiosity and that that desire and willingness to learn new things and talk to new people and meet lots and lots and lots of folks and you know that's been that's been probably the thing that i guess i don't know how it's changed me but i'm sure that's changed me i've, I've had the fortune of having the ability to meet a lot of different people in a lot of different uh, industries and a lot of different positions and a lot of different countries and it's been it's been incredible to be able to do so. Uh, you know whether they're your customers or your distributors or your coworkers or uh, you know your vendors. You know those people leave a lasting impact on you, and and uh, I think that's probably the the biggest fortune that I've had. And with all of those relationships, what do you think? In reflection of those relationships, what have you learned most about yourself during the process? Probably one that that i that i thrive on the action and the relationships and the growth and the building that i love the the process i mean you know the the certainty of things is, is i think really uncomfortable for me so that i really like the the uncertainty more than more than anything else i can totally relate to that i'm often answering that question in the same way but I've yeah. always felt more comfortable in gray areas to try to give purpose to things that aren't making any sense. Yeah, absolutely. Who do you think has been most influential to you in your life, either professionally or personally? You know, professionally, I I had um, a boss at uh, the first company I worked for. It was a, a Taiwanese-owned freight forwarding company here locally, and she uh, she's the hardest working person I've ever met. And she never took no for an answer. Um, I ended up being a customer of hers for many, many years. We ended up having like significant, significant disagreements, um, of which a few have got you know, heated in nature. Uh, and, and we would always sort of the next day call each other and apologize. Not when I worked for her, but when I was her customer, and uh her name's cindy and i actually saw her yesterday because i went to go talk to her about my new business and how they might be able to use it and integrate it into what they're doing today and you know while we didn't you know interact a ton at the time um i i had i always had an incredible amount of respect for her and always look back at her as someone that i hold up as a as a success and a, and a mentor in many ways so professionally, certainly, certainly I would, I would point to her. So on, on the personal side, I, I don't know, this may sound, you know, a bit cliche, but I, I mean, I think, you know, my, my kids have been most influential on me and probably in that they've, they've changed me the most of anyone. Uh, and in what way? I have two young daughters. I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old and, you know, the relationship that, that I have with my four-year-old, certainly, you know, the two-year-old 
it's it's evolving and changing and growing but you know it just it, it makes you look at the world in, in a very innocent different way and it gives you gives you a different sense of purpose you know I, I think as you work a lot and travel a lot and you're so hyper focused on on your business and it's and it's hard not to be because that's what we do and that's you know who we are as entrepreneurs you know, having that sense of being grounded with with um you know, with your kids is sort of the ultimate, um, you know, that, that sort of ultimate purpose. That is for sure. Finally, Caro, did I miss any questions that you feel like you'd like to provide answers to? Or do you have any closing bits of advice for our aspiring entrepreneur listeners? Yeah, you asked a lot of great questions, a lot of thought-provoking, tough questions that, that I think are, are um, hopefully it adds some value to your listeners. Um, I think that uh, that entrepreneurship is hard. It's really, really hard, and and consumer products are you know are, are hard as well. And so, get ready for a fight and a prolonged fight that you need to to make sure that that you're well enough capitalized or have a, a good plan that doesn't always say that you're growing at 10% month over month. And prepare yourself for for some of the potential potential challenges. Make sure that you're you're aware and you're learning and you're curious and you're talking to as many people as you can and and you know your product and your space better than anyone out there um, and that you know you're uh, you're a great salesperson I would, I would definitely say that you know the ability to sell is probably the most important thing because you're going to need to sell constantly to everyone whether it's an investor uh, customer your team recruiting your banker, your finance people, everyone. So, uh, you know, become, uh, become good at selling. Caro, excellent closing advice. You've been just a terrific guest offering some great stories and thoughts to our aspiring entrepreneur listeners. Congratulations on your success, for your entrepreneurial courage, and thanks for sharing your experiences with us today. It's been really nice. Yeah, John, thanks for, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it and I uh, look forward to staying in touch. Well, you've just listened to another episode of Product Launch Rebel featuring John Benzik of Venture Superfly. To download episodes of previous shows or for other entrepreneur-related resources, visit VentureSuperfly.com. Be sure to like Venture Superfly on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to Product Launch Rebel in iTunes. Join us for our next Product Launch Rebel episode where we'll continue to reveal insider tips on how to launch and grow your physical product-based business.